I, I don't think that we should bomb bridges in response to Cambridge Analytica. No, of course not. We'd have to bomb our own bridges. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we did that to we did that one to ourselves basically. <laughs> so we have no one else to blame but ourselves and and the Brits for that. Damn Brits! Yeah, helped them out twice in the World Wars, and what do we get in return? <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy both easy to understand and relevant for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Marhaba. Valida Azamatova. Hello. And Matthew Spencer Kosiel. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So this week's episode is all about, quote, the cyber. Since the advent of computers, cyber warfare has been an integral part of both armed conflict and covert espionage. Indeed, the first modern computer was created during the Second World War as a means to crack the famous German Enigma code. As societies become increasingly dependent upon technology and computers for basically every daily function, the vectors of possible cyber attacks have greatly increased. These can be seen in massive data breaches like those of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management or the Experian data breach, uh, to critical infrastructure hacks like those recently committed by the Russian intelligence services. These vulnerabilities often target civilian populations, which makes them really hard to defend against. And it's even harder to deter these attacks, since nations like the United States aren't too keen on retaliating in kind against other civilian populations. So, what are some of the other differences between conventional warfare and cyber war? And is there even a real possibility for deterrence in cyber warfare? It's so hard to actually find where the line between warfare and peace comes into play, or competition, I should say, and peace comes into play, because... Whatever happens in war is, I guess it's just politics by another means. That is true, but we also attribute special law to war and special, I guess, attributes to what comes and what happens in war. So if we are in a war, we apply a lex specialis or a special law that overrides the common law. For instance, you, you don't expect a soldier on a battlefield to read, the Miranda, read Miranda rights to someone that he's taking as prisoner. He's just going to take prisoner. There's no expectation of due process in that. And the other side, when you're talking about cyber, uh, there's almost always an expectation of something where considering due process in terms of warfare. But there are incidents happening a lot nowadays, such as there was a cyber hack in Saudi Arabia just uh, about a month ago, which I guess it was just revealed a month ago. I shouldn't say it happened a month ago. We don't exactly know when it started, but the cyber hack was specifically built to go into a uh, oil refinery, clog up a couple of vital pipelines, and cause the refinery to explode and destroy it. What is the difference between that and an artillery strike? I, I don't see too much of one because you're going to be damaging 
human lives in the process. And the United States has been explicit, whatever in cyber an attack would injure civilians or hurt civilian infrastructure, anything to that extent, is an act of warfare and can be responded to with conventional means. But is that really true? I mean, it does the hack of the o- OPM, does that really warrant a drone strike on a facility in China? Or does the even the election hacking, which I believe was an attack against the United States, but does that warrant a, a cruise missile shot into Russia? Well, I think you have to look at um, cyberspace as a medium. Uh, it's a medium for communication, and it can clearly be a medium for conflict. So just like how you could develop a space program to peacefully go to the moon, uh, you know, you could develop a space program so you could have intercontinental ballistic missiles as well. Uh, that's why it's really important to look at the fact that there's a lot of different classifications um, of attacks or threats or conflict in information security and cybersecurity studies. So what you're talking about is, um, you know, targeting of critical infrastructure using cyberspace as a means to an end. Um, I mean, that's simply an adaptation of technology where ways... Um, but it's deniable, are right? Different... Oh, so the question is sort of the traceability, like the liability that you might be concerned Not about. A, the idea I, that... I think that plays a huge role into it because if Russia... I mean, unless you have a uh, Tom Clancy novel, Russia, if Russia nukes the United States, we know it was Russia. If China fires on a frigate, we know it was China. But if, if some hacker walks in or uh, hacks into the U.S. electrical grid and shuts it all down, killing thousands of people, if we can – the Trump administration has shown it, right? We are almost 100% sure – almost 100% sure that Russia hacked into our elections, but we are not 100% sure. So we don't do anything. Well, it's important to look at, first of all, uh, there's a difference between physical and non-physical attacks, and even attacks against, you know, critical information infrastructure are different from uh, simply, you know, using the internet as a medium to cause, you know, chaos or confusion. Um you know, again, that's, you know, there's information warfare. And I suppose a lot of us in security studies are really eager to use the word war, even if there's not necessarily um, shots being fired or people being murdered or killed. I think that it's important that we get a few classifications out of the way. Uh, You know, some instances that we call hacking may not necessarily be hacking. You might literally have a case of computer and IT experts infiltrating the architecture of the DNC email system. That's hacking. Um, exploitative uh, internet schemes such as malware, you know, um, basically exploiting the human element of cyberspace, the end user, uh, to basically retrieve information unethically. I mean, that's definitely a form of attack. It's not a physical attack. Um, But it's not necessarily on the same level of sophistication as hacking. Somebody could buy a malware... um, package and then use that and launch that against people that they don't like. Uh, That's certainly different than somebody that has the expertise to uh, use cyberspace to infiltrate, let's just say, you know, the computerized or automated systems of a nuclear facility and cause the disaster 
that was the Stuxnet attack. So, you know, it's almost like the difference between, like, large arms and small arms. You know, anybody can buy a gun. You know, anybody can, you know, do a spear phishing campaign. But not everybody can actually literally hack into you know, the architecture of a network. But it's just that, it's just that uh, ability. We know it was a nation state and we can say this hacking or this malware attack required nation state ability to be able to execute. But we cannot fully define what nation state it is. Obviously, North Korea perpetrates many cyber attacks across the world, but they're not fully attributable to North Korea because you're able to hide your steps to some extent and because there's no physical evidence that, hey, North a North Korean walked in here and shut down the internet for a large portion of the East Coast. If and, and North Korea did the uh, attacks on, and you're going to know more about this than I will, but the attacks in the UK on the healthcare system there, how are those yeah, not... Yeah, the, the WannaCrime malware How is that different... Then, except in scale, how is that different from Russia bombing a hospital in Syria? Well, sometimes the goal of a malware or, or a cyber attack might not be to cause damage, but might be to might be theft or might be theft of something financial or theft of information. But in these um, cases, it was to cause pain and to cause harm. It wasn't and like the. Atlanta today was hit by a hacking attempt, or I should say a ransomware attempt, that's trying to extort $50,000 from the city of Atlanta and shut down basically all government computers within Atlanta. That is obviously a extortion attempt. But when you're shutting down the internet of the eastern seaboard, if you're shutting down the uh, hospitals of Great Britain, or I shouldn't say Great Britain, I'm sorry, of the United Kingdom, that is obviously an attack. It's not, and it's not a an attempt to extort something from someone. It's an attempt to hurt them. And in these cases, hurting is violence. That is simply what it is. What is the difference between an act of physical violence and an act of internet violence, or? violence via code, if you want to say something like that. If North Korea bombed the hospitals of the United Kingdom and took them out of commission for as long as the internet thing did for them, would that not be an act of war? Well, here's another complicating factor when it comes to cyber war. Now, civilians and state actors can now access and use the same grade of online weaponry in a cyber attack, which obviously just means computer code. So uh, the case with North Korea, I mean, it could be speculative. It may take months to say with certainty who could be responsible for a certain attack. Like, hackers could routinely borrow sections of different codes from one another, and that could definitely throw a lot of investigators uh, off the trail. So let's say, like, while a victim might succeed in tracking a cyber attack to a specific server in a different state. It could definitely be time-consuming, but then um, it might be impossible to identify that entity or individual who was directing that attack. For example, the attacker might well use or hijack innocent systems and kind of use them as um, 
like guinea pigs or zombies when conducting like, like these attacks. Yeah, kind of like a bot. And uh, computer code can do like all different things. Like we see it in the world. Like these tweets, even Twitter can now have the potential to shape geopolitical relations. Like with a single click on Amazon, we can just buy something. Like computer. The the point is that right now drawing a line between online and offline is just unrealistic. There is no internet and the real world because that line is just an illusion. It's just foolish to assume that the wars that are just fought online are going to remain in the internet. I feel like these days it's more relevant that uh, it's affecting the real world. And how should we respond to these sorts of attacks that are happening for instance the botnet attack that you talked about was uh perpetrated that was the one two years ago that actually that shut down the internet for the eastern seaboard and that was a the internet of things was hijacked by hackers and used to as a botnet attack to take down the internet and we didn't respond to that i i don't necessarily think that we have to respond in kind in the exact same way right so like in that instance of taking down the internet for the entire East Coast, if we could very quickly and very definitively prove that it was, you know, Russia, something to that effect, then we don't have to necessarily respond with a similar strike against their internet capabilities or even a similar cyber strike. We can respond with any number of tools that would put pressure on Russia to stop doing what they're doing. So we could respond with economic sanctions we could respond with uh, diplomatic removals as was as we've seen these past couple of weeks we could even respond with very limited um, military strikes on specific targets that would not be the types of targets that would escalate a certain conflict um, like something to the effect of i don't know maybe that bridge that they're building between crimea and uh, the rest of russia you know if something like that is a critical piece of infrastructure that would not actually necessarily provoke um, full-scale military conflict, but it could still be done, or something like that could still be done, that would definitely send the message that this type of behavior is not acceptable. So we wouldn't necessarily have to try to respond with a similar cyber attack. We could respond with any number of things that we have in our arsenal. But here's my problem, and I know I'm being a negative Nancy on this, but my problem with this is that when you're talking about the deterrence aspect of these sorts of situations, you need something that is at least related to what we're going after. And that's my problem with economic sanctions and has been my problem with economic sanctions for a long time. As we've seen in Iran, if Iran gets rid of its nuclear capability then we kind of remove sanctions. Someone else comes in and goes, yeah, well, we really liked those sanctions on Iran, so we are going to pass it over to the ballistic missile program. And sanctions just say one state basically doesn't like another state. They have never been judiciously used to show that if you have a certain thing that you are doing, if you stop doing it, we will remove economic sanctions. There's always more attached to it. And they're very hard to remove in the way that uh, subsidies are. Subsidies are very hard to grant, very hard to remove, and the same thing with economic sanctions. And then when you go back to responding in some other format, so say a a strike on the bridge between Crimea and uh, the rest of Russia, it's very hard to say that that is explicitly for the hacks against this or the cyber intrusion into that. 
more than likely they're going to look at it and go, well, this was a goal of X, Y, and Z. It doesn't expressly matter what the United States says. It matters what Russia or the target of these attacks believes. And the only way, without a doubt, to make sure that they know this is for cyber warfare is to make it intrinsically linked to what they did. So it sounds like the big difference here is Nick says any deterrence is good deterrence. Or is you're you're arguing that you need an in-kind deterrence to kind of show an Maybe not an in-kind deterrence, but a very specific deterrence and a deterrence that has a very symbolic value. So, I mean, and I'm, I wouldn't advocate this, but say a military, a drone strike against the facilities that were actually doing the cyber hacking against the GRU facilities. That would be intrinsically linked to the hacking, and no one could dispute we hit that building because they hacked us. Couldn't we just say we did this because you did this? I mean, they, they'd they be more inclined to believe us because we're telling them directly, right? So if we were to to strike some type of facility and say we did this because you hacked us and we went on the world stage and proclaimed that to everything and everyone, wouldn't that be some form of deterrence? It- It would be some form of deterrence, yes, but it wouldn't be the type of deterrence that would be inherent. And it's because they could have doubts about what was actually done. So we can say all day that we bombed the bridge between Crimea and the rest, excuse me, the rest of Russia because of their cyber hacking. And we could say that to the UN, we could say that in private, we could say that however we want. The The fact remains that we have other interests in Ukraine for separating Crimea. So they are going to look at it and go, there are two possibilities here. This is either what they say, or this is what they be- or this is what we believe they want. And more than likely, if they have an ulterior motive, they are going to try to default, or they're not trying, but they're going to default to what they think is more rational. And if that rationality is separating Crimea from the rest of Russia, then that is, I- I- I'd say, probably pretty, I guess, convincing to them. It's. It doesn't matter exactly, really, what we mean. It mean it matters what they think we mean, and what, and that they don't believe that we're just using the hacking thing, or the cyber thing as a cover for what we're actually doing. Sure, and I mean I, I agree with you that an in kind or something close to an in kind uh, deterrent response would be best, but I just feel like that's really hard to do sometimes, especially because given the nature of these cyber attacks, we can't replicate them exactly how they were. And it's it takes so much more time to even respond in a similar way. It's not like a military strike where, oh, you hit me here, I'm going to hit you over there. It's you hacked this one, uh, you exploited this one vulnerability of this one software that this one type of computer system is using. We can't replicate that immediately, you know, so there's a, there's a lag time between that response. Yeah, and that I definitely agree. That's a huge problem. And that's actually why I'm so concerned about this is because, and I I know I talked to you guys about this before, but the other people that are listening to this haven't heard this, is I have a very, very big concern about whether the United States can even have a deterrence when it comes to uh, cyber warfare or cyber hacking, specifically because of what you say. I think that the only type of good deterrence is a deterrence that is inherently proven for one reason or another, but like you say, it's almost impossible to do with cyber. For deterrence to be effective, it has to be visible. 
and the nature of U.S. intelligence communities that do anything with cyber, so Cybercom and uh, the NSA, the nature of those organizations is to be ultra secret. So in you can you can respond very strongly and still not actually have a deterrence effect. When things like cyber cyber technology drastically increased at the end of the 20th century, uh, it became clear to a lot of folks in international relation that they needed to seek an analog. And so when it comes to deterrence or it comes to other um other other international relations aspects of this technology, the best that people can do is compare it to nuclear arms, something that is a piece of technology, something that exists outside of conventional military responses. And so it's really important to look at that, for example, because with nuclear deterrence or nuclear weaponry, it becomes no longer an issue of military. It becomes an issue of scientists, government, and politicians playing equally large roles if not larger roles in how to deter other nations or push other nations around more so than simply the military apparatus of the nation. Okay, but I take exception with that just a little bit because it's, if you say it's like nuclear capabilities, nuclear capabilities were deterrents in and of themselves because the use of a nuclear weapon would be the end of the world. You don't have the same impact with cyber weapons and I guess the second portion would... The whole point is... Um, but it's also, if you use a cyber weapon, no one knows. If you use a nuclear weapon, everyone knows. Yeah, so you're right. That's the big difference is the visibility. Also, the fact that you don't have mutually assured destruction with cyber attacks. Um, the point that I was trying to uh, get to with that, or allude to, was that it's technology, it can be used for warfare, but it is not necessarily something of a traditional military domain. So it has to be looked at, you know, differently from, you know, it's a, it's a completely different creature. And that's what makes it difficult is that, you know, the nuclear age we had, you know, we've got more than 50 years of thinkers and writers and intellectuals that could reconcile uh, nuclear weapons and incorporate nuclear weapons into the nature of high politics. But uh, cyber technology is relatively young. We don't have enough writers or thinkers in the international relations realm to be able to really hammer down solid theories on it, you know. Then let me, so, let me put this to you real quick then. Should we make a, next time we get hacked or next time a hacking happens in the United States, should we hack back and should we do it super visibly and acknowledge that this entire, the reason why Siberia doesn't have power for this next five days is because the United States said no. But Stephen, I mean, like, you got to realize that there might be consequences in engaging in that kind of conduct. And I don't think America wants to take actions that are perceived as being lawless or that could potentially cause lots of collateral harm. I mean, technologies are never 100% perfect, you know, and um, I just think that justifying self-defense is extremely complex and really hard and we just don't have that amount of jurisdiction out there that can just identify what can be a self-defense second of all i think that self-defense can go two ways you know first way we can like you said punish the person the bad guys and the second we can just minimize uh, the victim's um 
um, damages. So we don't necessarily have to go the first way in some instances. You know, we could go the second way. What is way. the second way, deterrence? I mean, minimizing, it's kind of like saying we can minimize the casualties. Of, and this is going to be, I'm sorry, this is, I'm, I was going to say a really bad example. Um, it's, it's like saying we can prevent robberies or we can minimize the impact of robberies. But that doesn't mean that we are going to prevent them or we're going to have any deterrence against them. I, I just think that because the nature of cyber conflict is so decentralized, deterrence is highly flawed in that regard. Because, again, you need a central authority to decide to push the big red nuclear button. You don't need a central authority to decide to engage in cyber mayhem. Information warfare has always been a part of conflict between competing groups, but the proliferation of social media has made it much easier to wage information warfare around the world. It's now no secret that social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram were all utilized by nefarious Russian actors in order to sow discord within the American policy conversation. But recent developments involving the weaponization of Facebook data for targeted political advertisements from companies like Cambridge Analytica have revealed even more possibilities for foreign entities, or even just rich corporations, to meddle in the democratic process of other nations. So, short of labeling everything that one party doesn't like as fake news, how can this be overcome? And again, is there any sort of deterrent that is possible? I don't know, this is just such a... This is a really, 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 really difficult topic because when you really get down to it, this is the exploitation of inherently of freedom. And I, I, I don't say that as like the bald eagle is going to come screeching in over my head and I'm going to wave an American flag while drinking a beer and eating apple pie. No, no, no. This is like it, just intrinsic freedom, the freedom to put what you want on social media, the freedom to interact with who what you want on social media and the freedom to sell or to buy what you want on social media. And if you have that much freedom, it's it's like a marketplace. If you have a completely laissez-faire uh, marketplace, then you could very well fall into the trap of having the market distorted by someone who has a, I don't know, a, a, a nefarious purpose. How do you prevent that? By having regulations on the market, but there's no real good way of preventing that. There's always going to be someone out there who has nefarious intent, and I, 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 in terms of social media and information warfare and that sort of topic, I, oh man, I don't think that, I, I honestly don't think there's anything we can do about it. Uh, my problem with that, Stephen, is that it's really hard to identify what is um, objectionable content, while some people might think that a speech could be advocated 
for like freedom, but some might say that it's advocating for violence or harm. And I know a lot of people say that some of the ways to fight with that is to create government regulations. But my issue with those regulations is that it could really give power to authoritarian regimes like um, Russia that could just uh, tackle any fake news. You know, they monitor the news that are circulating online and just uh, that would just in, in, impose like huge threats to the freedom of speech. It would be terrible, and people would not know how to express their um, express their speeches. And just um, writing journalism would be very low. Um, that's my problem. Is that how do we tackle with that? Another aspect is educating people, uh, educating the youth, especially on wh- how to call out fake news and uh, without legitimizing them. Um, I guess another thing would be technology company responsibilities. Maybe we can improve our technology firms that could just invest to identify fake news and uh, through different codes and algorithms, just kind of filter that out. But I don't know how we're going with that. Do you guys have any opinions on On that? First topic, I know that exactly what you said has already happened. And at least I know in Saudi Arabia, I'm sure it happens in other countries more deftly. But in Saudi Arabia, when the entire Qatar crisis started happening, anyone who tweeted in support of Qatar was jailed by Saudi Arabia. And that is exactly what you're talking about, a regulation of the free speech, but taken out of, I guess, context or out of uh, what we would see as an acceptable use. But to authoritarians, it's completely fine. Yeah, I suppose that um, this might go back to the topic we were speaking speaking to last uh, podcast about the nature of democratization. Well, you see authoritarian regimes will sometimes you know, have this rather, you know, monstrous mimicry of liberalism, like this faux liberalism, such as censoring under the auspices of something noble, like fighting hate crimes, you know, or promoting Pornography is a lot of it. So, Well, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean that in jest. I mean, there's a lot of sites out there that are legitimate sites that are blocked because they show quote-unquote pornography, and it's in no way, shape, or form pornography. They just say it is. You know, and they'll they'll often take a tone of paternalism. Authoritarian regimes, especially uh, post-Soviet ones, can be very paternalistic. The idea that, you know, they're taking care of you. You know, that the father of the nation is here to make sure that you are, you know, is looking out for your well-being. Therefore, we're going to um, eliminate this, this obscene material. Oh, well, you know, it's obscene like pornography, journalism that questions the government. So that'll get uh, tossed in the pile of censorship too, or or anything that uh, anything that speaks ill of the Prophet Muhammad, say in a Middle Eastern country. Definitely, definitely, yep. Yeah, um, and I suppose if we want to put on our Middle East studies cap, you know, there's this there's this idea of you know um, multicultural harmony that in order for multiple cultures and uh, undemocratic parts of the world to coexist harmoniously we just don't talk about politics or we just don't talk about religion you know so those things are just going to be banned you know we see it a lot in a lot of middle eastern um countries for example so back to the topic i suppose uh that we were getting on i know that Stephen and valida had two slightly opposing points 
Oh, you mean the... Oh, no, 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 sorry. I, I agree with Valida. I think that regulation of social media is actually very difficult and be, can, can be taken way out of context. I Sorry, I'm, when I said that, I meant in context to the free market. We can regulate the free market okay. I just don't... I have no idea how we can regulate social media, and I think Valida said exactly what I was thinking about that. Because I've seen it... Oh, sorry, Matthew. I just wanted oh, no. to say that I've seen it like it's almost in all of the post-Soviet Central Asian countries. Uh, we have limited media. Our media improvements have been so slow. We have like maybe three of our or four of our Uzbek channels and the rest is just Russian news, Russian channels everywhere. And it's so difficult. Like Matthew said, we talked about it in our last podcast uh, for countries that have not developed their own democracy yet, it's really hard for them to be on their path if they can't even understand what's going on in the world with this kind of limited media, you know? Linguistically speaking, you're really getting onto a good point about the sort of the social cultural infosphere. Uh, the fact that Russia is a common unifying language for a lot of post Soviet states. I think it's interesting that you bring that up, that there's this. Uh, this scarcity of native language media and then this uh, surplus of Russian language media. So this is an example where it's not necessarily technology um, that should be looked at as the, 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 the biggest issue. There's something sort of non-technological about it, which is that you have a foreign power, Russia, and it happens to have played the sort of cultural hegemonic role for centuries and as such. It's the lingua franca, and it does uh, serve as a threat to the sovereignty or the autonomy of these Central Asian states. So you'll see states like Kazakhstan, where they're trying not to offend um, their Russian patrons. But they will say, for example, we want to pursue our national pride by teaching Kazakhstan language in school. And that's to sort of create a form of uh, independence from Russian media. I was just going to say, it sounds like we all kind of agree on that it's incredibly difficult to do anything about what happens on social media because, I mean, you go a little bit one way and you fall off a cliff, you go a little bit in another way and you fall off a cliff, and personally, I don't think that even education can really do anything because when you're talking about the education of any common person on these sorts of issues... Uh, they have too much going on in their normal lives. They're not going to care about it. They're not going to listen to it, and they're not going to pay attention to it. And I think they have all the right in the world not to. They have too much going on. And So what should we do? I think that there are some things that we can do that aren't necessarily, you know, causing problems with regards to free speech. So, like, there are ways to, say, prevent a firm for, like Cambridge Analytica from exploiting and manipulating this data in order to create some sort of um, you know, some sort of anger or tension that didn't normally exist we could have ways of pre preventing say russian bots from just spamming all of twitter with really divisive rhetoric and um, you know liking sorts of posts like that i think that there are some ways that we can try to prevent these types of um, divisions from escalating even further within the social media sphere but we can do that without necessarily stopping free speech. Because I don't think it's def it's a question of preventing anyone from exercising their speech or suppressing any particular type of speech. It's more about how can we control and prevent certain behaviors that we know are 
divisive and we know are exploitative of the social media environment. So what, what type of policies would you be like looking at there? I guess the type of policy that I have in mind would be something that would, I guess something that would regulate the practice of micro-targeting, like what, Cam- what Cambridge Analytica was involved in. Something that says, you know, maybe you can't necessarily, for political purposes, target someone to that level of specificity. I mean, it could still be done in like a marketing standpoint, because nobody really cares if you look at someone's data and go, you know, here's a product you might want to buy, please buy it or don't, we don't really care. Um, but it's different when it's of a political mindset. And I think that that's one area that could at least in some ways be regulated. But how do you tell what they're doing? Because I mean, if we didn't have these leaks from Cambridge Analytica, we wouldn't really know the extent to how they use that data. And for all intents and purposes, when they got that data, they could, and, and to be fair, they did illicitly get that data. But when they did get that data, they could have completely used it for marketing purposes within their own organization in a black box, and nobody could have been able any wiser to the difference. Well, I mean, in the same way, we do regulate types of um, political advertisements in basically any other medium. It's just finding a way to translate that into the social media sphere. And of course, that will be substantially more difficult, but I think it can still be done. It's when you can obviously tell that a company is using that data for this expressly political purpose and using these types of tactics that we all can agree are essentially undemocratic. I I think that perhaps one of the problems is and where definitely the technology is going to make a difference, like whether it's traditional media versus what is new media, which is the social media. The, The big difference is that you know, our campaign financing, our campaign advertising, campaign speech laws that we've had developed over decades, over generations, over numerous presidential, other electoral cycles, the easiest and most obvious way to quantify it is through spending. You know, um, it, it used to be very easy to just say whoever spends the most on a political campaign is probably going to have the best outcome. But, uh in the age of social media, dollars and cents are not the most uh, accurate way to really measure the effectiveness of a campaign, since social media can be a very inexpensive platform to exploit. I think that if you look at the numbers, for example, Donald Trump did not spend as much as Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump did not raise as much, but rather he and his uh, team exploited social media in a different way. And that played a role in giving him a competitive edge, at least where it was needed. Again, of course, he won the election by negative 3 million votes because he relied on the Electoral College. But, you know, we mentioned micro-targeting. He succeeded where it mattered, thanks to the Electoral College and swing states. But again, you know, it used to be that if you bought up enough billboard space, you bought up enough ad space, um, you could guarantee that you could saturate the media and saturate consumers with your message and and your campaign slogans and your ads but you know again with with um with facebook advertising what's proved is that it's very inexpensive to campaign to manipulate an audience into voting for your candidate or supporting your cause okay so uh, and follow me on this is one of facebook's features is that it gathers data so that as nick says so that people can 
market better and more effective products to their uh, customers on Facebook. They gather all that data legitimately and with our consent to do that. Once they get that data, it is technically theirs to do what they with do uh, what do what they please with. There is, there are some bylines that they're supposed to not cross, but and obviously political. I guess uh, campaigning is one of those bylines they're not technically supposed to cross already. So when this information was taken by a researcher and given to Cambridge Analytica, it was already illegal to have been... I shouldn't say illegal because it's not uh, against the law, but it's against Facebook policies to be able to do that. But they did it anyways. And I am a little concerned that we are talking about regulating these things by able to go in and say, yeah, you can't use uh, this, this, or this for this, this, or this purposes. But we don't know how the transactions of information are going on behind the scenes. When that Cambridge data, or when that uh, person who took the original data got it and gave it to Cambridge Analytica, nobody knew about it. Facebook didn't know about it. The government didn't know about it. The people didn't know about it. Only that researcher in Cambridge Analytica knew about it. And then when Cambridge Analytica came in with so ads... lack of transparency. Well, it, it, not lack just of lack disclosure. of transparency, but when Cambridge Analytica came in with ads, all it looked like is they had very, very well-placed ads. And you can't prosecute mm-hmm. someone on well-placed ads. Just because they're... That's, you're absolutely right. I mean, if they're doing a job very well, which is reaching their target audience really well. How can you prosecute them for that? It sounds like this issue is more like tying up Facebook and litigation for, you know, having terms of services that they can't, uh, they can't hold their promises towards. If we were to say, yes, Facebook is able to collect this data and give it to people for marketing purposes, but it needs to keep track of this data when it's doing it, whether it goes to the outside world or whatnot, that gives reciprocity for other countries to do exactly the same thing. And we get back to what Valida was saying. China can request the data of what has been looked up for X, Y, and Z for its country people. Obviously, Facebook's not allowed in China, so it's a mute point. But it allows other countries, if you have government oversight of some of these things, to come in and say, yeah, well, it operates in our country too. We want government oversight of that specific portion as well. And that specific portion can be harmful, especially when it is protection of data, saying that, hey, verify to us that you have protected all of this data right here. Well, yeah, Saudi Arabia can say verify that it's protected all of the Houthi data on its database. And guess what? They're probably not going to use that for what we would consider legitimate purposes. Well, there's something that people can do that they don't need the government or policies. It's two things. First of all, be skeptical about the news sources. And second of all, uh, follow a diversity of people and perspectives. You know, a real political scientist looks at various news sources, and I'm sure we all do here, and I feel like relying upon a small number of like-minded news sources just limits that range of material available to people, and that just increases that uh, the, the odds to f- um, fall the victims to the false rumors. Now, this method might not be entirely foolproof, but at least it increases the odds of hearing 
diverse viewpoints and people being more open-minded and also just a free advertisement for our listeners that's why I keep on listening to the orientalist express so that you don't uh, fall <laughs> i see what you did there <laughs> you are the best marketer we could ever hope for it's that's just great ah that's amazing but yeah i mean you're absolutely right that 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 is the key to unlocking all of this is just if people were to just educate themselves about the different points of view um i think part of the problem though is that you know who wants to do that right like it's way more fun to sit in your echo chamber and scream about how awful the other side is instead of actually try to understand what they're talking about in defense of those people though i mean there's so well i was in defense of those people there's so much out there to learn about I mean, I focus, I specifically avoid any idea of domestic politics myself. I do not pay attention to domestic politics at all because I only focus on international relations and international politics, which leaves me completely blank to what's happening in the United States. And that's, it's because there's so much information out there. How can you blame them for not being able to check all these things and check multiple sites? And it's... It's almost it's it's a uh, Sisyphean task. So um, it's interesting that we bring this up. It's interesting that Valida brings up uh, what should we do as uh, political scientists. Well, um, just like how in the first segment we talked about cybersecurity, good political scientists, being the vultures they are, should consult IT experts when it comes to cybersecurity issues. Good social scientists, good uh, political scientists, should talk to information scientists uh, if they want to talk about things like the nature of media and how we react to it and how we learn. Uh, An information scientist, well, that's just a fancy dressed-up term for a librarian. So if we're going to plug things right now, I'd like to plug in the importance of libraries and library science. Uh, as, as, As a man who is proudly married to a librarian, I think that it's important that we discuss things like epistemic bubbles. Um, and how those shelter us against uh, expanding our knowledge base. And again, it's this is going beyond the realm of political science. This is information science. How do we gain our information? How is our information organized for us to access and retrieve it? If you're, there's an information overload, uh, which the internet is more than capable of doing to people, if information is hard to source or cite properly, or verify, which again is difficult to do on the internet, then we need to ask ourselves uh, to put on the information scientist hat and then think about the psychology of how we learn, uh, how do we think critically, as well as how do we make sure sources are cited properly. This goes back to what I hope everybody had to learn in high school and college, which is how to find appropriate sources um, for information, especially on the internet. Not a lot of people can think critically enough to look at a news headline and see whether or not that's from a reputable source. And that is a big problem. I do agree with you that it's really have. hard to, or it, that one of the alleviations of finding all those things is to talk to expert sources. And I, but I mean, when we get right back, I'm bringing this back around to social media. How are you supposed to consult expert sources when you're just rolling through your media feed and go oh hillary clinton's a bitch oh well i probably agree with that she keeps scrolling keep scrolling it's not something you're just gonna this is why you can't this is 
that's exactly why we can't 100% blame Russians for uh, U.S. election results. Uh, when we see, uh, when we talk about, you know, the election hacking, really what that is is our democracy was already vulnerable because there's a lack of education on critical news consumption or critical consumption of news and information and data. I think that we are really underestimating the extent to the, not just the information overload, but the extent to how smart people and people who are able to analyze this information, the people who were tricked by this were not always just dunces. I know engineers, people who have to verify every single thing they do. People who are doctors have to verify everything they do. Even people that were political scientists in and of themselves who fell for a lot of this stupid information and it's not really because they didn't value information or it wasn't a societal they didn't value the information coming it's it played into what they liked and so they didn't test that but that's not a societal thing that's a human thing that's not something that is ever going to change you know, guys, we can be pessimistic about humans as much as we can, but I think I still have that little amount of optimism that everyone has that responsibility to combat fake news and disinformation. This can range from promoting the strong norms on professional journalism. We can support investigative journalism, reduce the financial incentives on these fake news outlets, and continue improving that digital literacy among the general public. And I feel like com combining all of this together would help us just weaken that environment of disinformation that we are currently living in. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen, Valida, and Matthew for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com. Like and share on our Facebook group while we still have a Facebook if we decide to not remove that eventually, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, or subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.